All right. Some of you are thinking, oh, those are great ideas for Christmas. I'll add them to my list. I want to joust on one of those things, right? Well, today we're going to look at what does it mean to be successful with money? And that's just a tiny glimpse of what the world might say would look like success when it comes to finances. And I, I want to be fully cognizant of the fact that some of you come today where this is an area of real woundedness. I've shared with you before that I was uh, raised by loving parents. Their heritage is German, Scottish, and tightwad. That's my background. <laughs> and so for me, kind of understanding God's view of money took a lot of unlearning and relearning. And then I discovered as I got married that some families don't struggle with saving too much. Other families struggle with spending too much. It's not my wife's fault. I just blame that on her parents, right? But some of us have uh, misconceptions about what does it mean to be successful with money? And the world tells us what success means, but what does the scriptures tell us? And I want to acknowledge that I know in this room are people in varying degrees of their spiritual journey. And so if you're here and you follow after Jesus, you have a relationship with God, some of this might surprise you, what the scriptures say about money. But if you're here and you're not really even sure about God, I, I want you to listen with an open heart and open mind as well, because maybe some of your resistance is based on mythology and not actually what the scriptures say. It's based on misunderstandings and not actually what God says. I mean, if you think of this commercial and the, what the world tells us is we always need a little bit more. I mean, how much more do you need to finally have enough? How, how much more do you need to feel secure? The answer is probably just a little bit more, right? We always just need a little bit more because once we finally get there, there's always something else that we might need. But what if we could truly succeed with money? What if we could have the kind of perspective when it comes to, to money, that we actually find contentment. We can experience gratitude, experience security, become generous, and, and truly be wealthy in God's eyes. In this series, we're trying to see things from an eternal perspective. That's why we're talking about the greatest reward. See, this, this side of eternity, this is more like the upside down. It's broken, it's messed up, it's not as it will be one day. And then the other side of eternity is, is life in a whole new dimension of time and space. It's the beauty of earth times a thousand. It's the things we love about life times a thousand. When it comes to relationships and work and enjoyment and love and excitement and even adventure and water sports and soccer. John Burke is convinced there will be water sports and soccer in heaven, he's told me. But he doesn't believe there will be golf because he says there's no lying, cheating, or cussing, so how could there be golf in heaven? <laughs> but many of you might think that God's goal is to take as much from you as he can, or that's the church's goal. But I, I want you to listen with open heart and open mind because I think you'll be surprised. There, there's a parable that Jesus tells, and a parable is, is really a story that has a punchline. It has one point, and if you miss the point, of the story you can misunderstand quite a bit. And in this story, he tells us about a rich man, a business tycoon, to whom many people are indebted. And he has 
a man who's managing his finances that he has discovered is corrupt and lazy, and so he fires that man. But he tells him, before you leave, I want a full accounting of everything. And so this man, this lazy, slothful, corrupt manager, begins to go to all the people that owe his boss money. And listen to what he does. This is in Luke 16. He goes to the first man and asks, how much do you owe? In Luke 16, verse 6, the man replied, I owe your boss 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. Well, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. So wait a minute, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the boss had to admire the guy, the guy who was lazy, unfaithful, dishonest, and self-centered. Yeah, but in the midst of that, Jesus is saying, but he was shrewd. So why would Jesus commend this guy? See, Jesus is saying he's shrewd. He worked the situation to secure his future, to benefit his future. When all is gone, including his job, there are now all these people that he has been kind to that could actually help him. In fact, the passage goes on to say, and it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Jesus is basically saying those who are children of light, those who are focused on the kingdom of God, aren't as wise with money as the people who are focused on this side of eternity. See, the children of light, that's those of us in this room who have surrendered our life to Jesus, that we're following after him, that we have trusted that his sacrifice on the cross is what we need for forgiveness and for life, and he is our leader. And he's saying to us that, that we're not shrewd. See, what we've been discussing over these last couple of weeks is we're learning that our thoughts and our motives and our deeds on earth matter. They do not earn us a relationship with God. See, God already loves us. No matter what we may have done, no matter where we may be from, his love for us is real. And out of that love, we are compelled to follow him and then to live in a way that honors him. And as we live out of gratitude, with generosity, with our time and our energy and even our finances, we are rewarded in the life to come on how we live in this world now. See, we're still in this economy, though. And Jesus is saying, look, look how the people of this world are actually investing in people. See, things do not last eternally, but people do. And this shrewd business manager is showing us that you can actually make decisions based on how this will affect people rather than just for your own good. See, we live in the world's economy. We still have to make money and pay bills and keep up our house and provide for our family. But what Jesus is telling us is make all you can, but honestly and with integrity. Be children of light, working hard, being smart and honest. But remember, we have a different game in mind. See, this is a, a way that rabbis would sometimes teach where they, they argue from the least to the greatest. In other words, he's saying, if a messed up, lazy, dishonest, 
self-centered, worldly guy is smart enough to use what he cannot keep to gain a secure future, then so should you and I. Well, then he gives us the punchline of the parable here in verse nine. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Jesus is saying, make all you can, but not because of what the world might say, not so that you can be lavish and ostentatious, but have eternity in mind. Instead, use it for the benefit of other people, to help others erase their debts, to help others find faith in God. Now, it's Thanksgiving this week. Can you believe it? It finally feels like Thanksgiving. But how many of you, when you get together with extended family, play board games? Any of you do that? Some of you reluctantly raised your hand. I grew up in a family, uh, we grew up, uh, my parents are both from San Antonio, so whenever we'd get together with family, all my aunts and uncles and cousins, we'd all come together and we'd play games. Have you ever played Monopoly? Monopoly's a lot of fun. I liked the thimble for some reason, and that was who I always was. But when you play Monopoly, if you're not familiar with Monopoly, you can actually own property. And when someone lands on your property, they owe you rent. And what begins to happen is you can actually really become a tycoon, a business magnet, and you can really stick it to your family. <laughs> and have you ever played a board game with your family and it turned into an all-out war? There was a season where we were banned. Me and my brother were banned from playing Monopoly. <laughs> See, what happens is you can play Monopoly in one of two ways. You can play it in a way that's kind and generous and nice, or you can be a jerk. But in the end, you still have to put everything back in the box. But your relationships are what last. And if you're a jerk when you're playing Monopoly, they may not like hanging out with you, may not offer you that extra piece of pie later in the day. See, how are you playing this game of life? So we need to make all we can, being shrewd and smart, but with an eternal perspective, which leads to the second way that God wants us to view money. We need to not only make and earn all that we can, but we need to save all that we can. We need to begin to save. Again, this is counterintuitive, but it's not just saving for this life, but saving for the life to come. God's wisdom tells us to stay out of debt and instead of to save up at least enough for emergencies. That's just wise living in a fallen world. As the bumper sticker says, stuff happens. So you need to have something saved. Listen to Proverbs 6. It tells us this. If in debt, free yourself. Since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands, free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gather its food at harvest. I mean, think of what the, the one who wrote the Proverbs is saying. Being in debt is like being hunted down. And even ants are smart enough to save up for when winter comes. And how many times do we find ourselves bogged down by debt? Do you remember that first credit card you got? Was it in college? It's such a, such a mean thing to give kids who have no money 
credit card. Man, that credit card is fun until you get that bill, until you, until you see that interest rate, right? See, God's wisdom says get out of debt as fast as you can, but that's not the culture's wisdom. Culture tells us to, to max it out so you can get another one. Now, we have a, a program here that we've adopted, and it's been incredibly helpful. How many of you have taken Financial Peace University? All right. We got a whistle in the second service. First service, there was applause. This thing has helped so many of us. There's been about 1,000 people from all of our Austin campuses that have taken Financial Peace University, and those 1,000 people have paid off $5 million in debt. It's a remarkable program. My wife, Deborah and I went through this. Now, we'd been married for 20 years, and we were always on different pages when it came to finances. And I would come up with a budget with her help, and at the end of the, every month, I would just calculate how much more we spent than what our budget said we should have. That's not how a budget works, by the way. You're supposed to use the budget to determine what to spend on, and we just could not seem to get on the same page. We could not seem to live within our means, and so we went through Financial Peace University here at Gateway, and for the first time, we got on the same page. And in fact, what was remarkable is every month, my wife would ask for a little bit more for the groceries, and every month, I couldn't figure out how to, to help do that. And then we came up with this plan, as it prescribed from Financial Peace University, where you use cash only for your purchases. Now, I'm telling you, when you have an envelope filled with cash, it is much harder to buy that third box of macaroni and cheese. It's kind of like, you know what, I'll just keep this right here, right? But that credit card, it's just easy. And for about four months, Deborah was not asking for more money. She was totally using the cash system and everything seemed to be working well. And then one day, we were sitting at the couch and I looked over and noticed she had an iPad. And I thought, sweetheart, where'd you get that iPad? And she said, you won't believe it. I've saved so much on groceries, I was able to buy an iPad. I was holding my little iPhone 4. <laughs> but it's amazing. When you begin to step into this system, it brings incredible freedom. And what it teaches you is to, to give 10% and to save 10% and to begin to live on 80%. And we're going to do this in the new year. We just have a, a group that's finishing up. If you're interested in finding out about the next class, just tell us on your Connect card before you leave today, or you can sign up for the Connect spot. We'll be sure to keep you in the loop in the new year when that's coming. But one of the principles is to save for when the winter of life comes, and you're supposed to save up for three months' wages in a do-not-touch-or-die account that's only for two crises, which, by the way, your favorite band coming for South by Southwest is not a crisis. <laughs> but if we just stopped at making as much as we can and saving as much as we can, we, we really, even if we have that internal perspective, we're still missing a key part of this. And that's having a kind of generous life where we give all that we can. See, there's lots of places to save or invest money shrewdly in property, in stocks or bonds, in money markets. All have a different level of risk and reward, but none are eternal or lasting investments. Listen to Luke 12. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. 
And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. See, we can save up for all these plastic houses and cars and plastic boats, but it's all going to go back into the box. To be rich towards God means not only having an eternal perspective in how we spend our money and, and why we save our money, but actually investing in what lasts. Investing on behalf of the kingdom of God. Investing in people. Two weeks ago, John Burke shared the story of moving to the former Soviet Union right after the, the entire country collapsed. And there were two different types of people. There were some that just were holding on to the rubles, but others began to see as the ruble began to decline in value, they would trade those rubles in for as many dollars as possible. See, they figured out that this is an economy that's not going to last, and so they wanted to hold on to something that would last. And those that did not invest in this economy that would last ended up with nothing. See, we live in the upside down. We live in a world whose economy will not last. This is not all there is. But we can invest in what lasts eternally. Invest in something that lasts forever. So how can we gather, gain this perspective? Well, first, we need to earn all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Financial Peace University calls it the 10-10-80 plan. First, you give 10% back to God. This is investing in God's work for eternity. Then, pay yourself 10% in savings or in reducing debt until it's gone. And then, beginning to live on 80% of your paycheck. And you may be thinking, well, why give 10% back to God first? You know, can't we give him the last 10%? Well, it's because God is testing how much we trust him and how much he can entrust to us. He's entrusted us with wealth that's passing away and wants to see if we'll so he can trust us with wealth that does not pass away. Listen how Jesus warns us just after he shares this parable of the shrewd manager. He says this in Luke 16. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've been, not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, Jesus knows our heart. See, money is a rival God. Some of us look to money for security. It's what we think about the most. It's what we count on the most. It's what we trust in the most. And if we are making that kind of priority for money, in many ways, we're worshiping money. That's what Jesus is warning us. See, worship is this idea of worth-ship. It's what you give greatest worth to. And God wants to see if we trust him, he wants to free us from being entangled by greed. God wants to free us from worshiping something that cannot save us, that cannot give us contentment or peace or happiness or love or joy or security. But giving to God's work 
loosens the level of control money has over us because we are giving him control in how the first 10% of our money is spent. Now, God needs nothing, and there's nothing we can give to God that he hasn't already given to us. He wants us to trust him, and that's demonstrated in obedience to his commands and trusting in his promises. The Hebrew scriptures talked a great deal about the tithe. This means literally 10%, giving the first 10% to God. And listen to this passage. It's the only passage in the scriptures that actually tells us that we can test God. Malachi chapter three. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the local storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. See, God is not taking from us. He's actually showing us an eternal perspective on viewing things differently. God's math is not our math. See, giving the first 10% to invest in God's kingdom work can be incredibly freeing, and if you've never tried it, I want to encourage you to do so. So many of you have tested God in this and have come back with some amazing stories. In fact, I want to share one from one of our own at Gateway North named Peru. He grew up Hindu, an unlikely tither, but listen to this story together. Hi, my name is Peru Agrawal. I grew up as a Hindu. I was born in India. Moved to Chicago when I was three. I grew up thinking tithing is how the church swindles you out of your money. And um, you know, I moved to Austin in 1999 and you know, first experienced Jesus in 2010 during a personal crisis where that was you know, the first time I heard God's voice in my head telling me things were gonna be okay. And I started moving closer to Jesus in 2013. Is, is when I first started tithing. And the story is pretty interesting because, you know, I had been a co-founder for a startup. We really built this company up. It seemed like it was doing well. And in 2013, we just run off a cliff. We had been forced to downsize from over 70 employees to just 12. I remember running around begging people to stay, you know, to go without pay to, uh, hang in there. Our lead institutional investor had put in just a little bit of money and said, you know, hey, if the 12 can somehow achieve the same revenue targets as the original plan, you know, which was meant to be achieved with 75 plus people, you know, then they would go ahead and, and reinvest into the company. And, and we had worked our butts off and miraculously had reinvented the company, reinvented how we did everything, and we had hit our revenue targets. And yet, the lead investor wasn't convinced, they weren't comfortable, and they decided to pull out, right? And so, on Thanksgiving day of 2013, I found myself in this position where I was gonna have to go back and tell everybody that, hey, thanks for all your efforts and your hard work and trusting us, but, you know, we're done. And as I was getting ready to make these calls, I remember hearing John say that this is the one place in the Bible where God says you can test him on this. And so, you know, I decided 
at that moment to tithe $2,500. You know, that's the amount that I would have been tithing if I had been getting paid at this reduced level over the last six months. And I wrote a check. And, you know, from there, things get really weird, right? So 30 minutes later, I get a call back from my partner. And he says that literally 30 minutes earlier, even though the institutional investor had backed out, one of the angel investors had gotten really excited by our story and had stepped up. Watching these guys hit that target, the institutional investor came back in and matched it. And we ended up raising twice the amount of money that we thought we'd been trying to raise. In order to just recognize everybody hanging in there on Thanksgiving Day, they were going to give everybody a $2,500 bonus. I approached a mentor of mine. He came back and said, you know, I've found throughout my life that you can't outgive God. And, and so I've been tithing ever since. So many of you have shared your stories. And in my own life, I, I was raised in the context of the local church, and my parents would give me and my brother a nickel each for allowance. Now, I was raised in the 80s, not the 1920s, but for some reason, <laughs> my efforts doing chores as an eight, nine-year-old deserved a nickel. And every Sunday, I had to give a penny for my tithe. And later, as I figured out math, I realized that's not 10%, that's 20%. I was getting ripped off. And as time has gone on, I have to tell you, so many times in my life, this is an issue that just moves back to the center. I struggle to trust God with my money. And that's even the funny part. It's not really my money, right? God has given me everything that I have. Everything I have that is good is a gift from God. And so when I, when I think about giving God 10% of my money, it's far easier to remember, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's not asking me to give 10% of my money. He's letting me keep 90% of his money. And throughout my life, there have been seasons where I have to tell you, one year we tried to give more than 10%. And at the end of the year, we added up our income and somehow with some extra money that came in, that generosity we thought we'd reached, actually we'd only given 10%. And then other years, in order to give 10%, it required great sacrifice. We went for months with only one car. And then one of our own felt sorry for me and gave me his 94 Volvo. This was in the year 2012. And with that Volvo, they had a headlight that would shake and sometimes fly off and I'd have to replace it at the junkyard so I wouldn't get a ticket. And it, the air conditioner stopped working. Boy, if you ever wanna be motivated to start saving, drive a Volvo in the summer in Austin without air conditioning. But I'm telling you, the sacrifices were, were worth it. In fact, what I've realized in my life is sometimes God does the miraculous, and when we give and we trust him in this way, he provides miraculously. And other times, the great miracle is we are able to live on less. But the most beautiful thing is our level of trust begins to grow in every area of life. And Jesus actually reiterates this idea of tithing. And it's, it's bigger than we think. He says in Matthew 23, 23, that we ought to tithe, but not from a heart of proving that you're good, 
but from a heart of mercy and justice and faithfulness. When I was in Los Angeles, I remember being a part of a conversation in our church called Mosaic, and Erwin McManus is our pastor there, and someone came up to him and said, now, Erwin, is this a grace church or a law church? See, the law in the Old Testament talks about 10%, but in the New Testament, it doesn't talk about it as much. And so he was trying to understand, are we one of these churches that talk about tithing or a church that just encourages people to give whether they want to, you know, whatever they want to. And he said, oh no, we're a grace church. He says, the law says do not murder, but grace says you should not even have anger in your heart towards another. The law says do not commit adultery, but grace says you should not even have a lustful thought in your heart towards another person. The law says give 10%, but grace says you can give 15, 20, 30, 40%. We will never stop you from giving. (laughs) But see, grace is never less than the law. He did not stay in our church, but it did something in me. Am I doing this out of obligation or am I doing this with a heart that's grateful, with an eternal perspective knowing that I get to be a part of giving towards investing in people, something that lasts? See, people of faith, we have a different view of life and the life to come and the wealth of this world and the wealth that is to come. Not only are we to earn all we can, save all we can, but to give all we can. And we shouldn't feel guilty for every purchase. God wants us to enjoy his blessings with thanksgiving. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. And before you think, oh, great, a verse that's not about me, let me just remind you, we live in the wealthiest nation in the world. And people in other countries think that owning a car means you have great wealth. But instead, we're to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, if we have a heart of gratitude, we're able to combat greed and jealousy and envy and discontentment. We don't have to go down the path of comparing and instead a heart that is grateful. We are thankful for what we have and not mad about what we don't have. I wonder if you've ever worked on a savings plan and if you've ever worked on a giving plan. See, God is trying to tell us for our own good, we need to see things from an eternal perspective. It's in giving to God through the local church that he's able to resource the work that he wants to do in this world. And every year at Gateway, at the end of the year, we we like to to remind you of what we're trying to accomplish together. And last year, uh, we gave above and beyond what is needed for our ongoing budget to the tune of $200,000. All of our campuses in Austin gave $200,000 that helped 1,000 refugees here in Austin and overseas. Your generosity did that, helping people who did not feel welcome experience love. And this year, our, or I should say last year, we actually together gave $109,000 towards our global partners and, and campus planting, church planting, and local initiatives. By meeting our budget, 11% of our budget goes towards these projects. 
And this year, if we meet our budget goal, a fiscal year, we'll give $135,000 towards some of these partners. When you came in, you may have received one of these cards. You can see the epicenters of impact. What we give together makes a difference still in places like Houston and in Las Vegas and in the Caribbean and in Burundi. See, the news gets our attention, but the news cycle moves on, and when the news moves on, we stay engaged. These are partners that we're going to help throughout the year. But I also want you to know that, that even together, an epicenter of impact isn't just what's going on overseas, but, but this is an epicenter of impact. This community is so unique to have a community of people from so many different places and different backgrounds and different places in their spiritual journey. This is unique. In a divided world, to have a safe place where you can come as you are. And I want you to know, you may not know this, but we're about to celebrate 10-year anniversary as Gateway South. Isn't that amazing? 10 years. And many of you were actually a part of actually helping what we did at Gateway North. And then you started Gateway South. And those of us who came after the beginning days, like I did, we got here in about year three of these 10 years, we're able to step into something beautiful that so many of you sacrificed to help create. I, I want to just walk you through quickly our, our journey to this place. You may not know, but we were in Covington Middle School. How many of you started off with us at Covington? All right. How many of you were at Crockett? That was your first experience. How many of you, this was your first experience? All right. Well, when we first started talking to Albertsons, we were subletting this from Albertsons. This had been empty for six years. And it was really kind of a blight in this part of Austin, to be honest. And we came and we cleaned up one day as we were getting ready to move in, and there were dead animals in this space. We cleaned it out. Lots of Clorox. I want to show you a picture. This is what it looked like. I'm literally standing where that white wall is. you see that far pole at the end? That's that pole right there, right there. And there are a team of us that cleaned up this space. We took a space that was left empty and we turned it into a place that's bringing life to people. Many of you helped build this place. Let me show you some of the days of the build out. That's where the kids check in is and that's looking into the auditorium. Here's another one looking into the auditorium. Uh, some of us, uh, some guys wanted to keep that wall just like that, set it with the wood. The sound would have been really tough, <laughs> but that's a cool door. And we'd come together and we would pray right outside and, and we'd sing together. And we actually came in here and wrote on the walls the names of people we hoped would one day find faith in this space. I got an email from a friend from Oregon who said, you won't believe this, but I saw in the pictures the person whose name I wrote on the wall just got baptized. You might be here as a direct result of the prayers of your friend or neighbor that invited you. In this space, marriages have found healing. People have been restored in their own emotional health through recovery, through life groups that have brought relationships. Children have discovered that there is a God who loves them. Teenagers have developed friendships in the midst of a season of life filled with so much temptation. And from this place, you've gone out to bring life and freedom to the city around us. And so I want to invite you at this end of the year to consider giving above and beyond what you already give. 
And in the middle of all this, we, it was kind of an amazing experience. We raised a million dollars for what we thought would cost $800,000. But if you've ever done anything in construction in the city of Austin, you probably caught what I said, what we thought would be. In the end, they required us to build three more bathrooms than we had planned. And when we ended up building these bathrooms, we decided, well, we might as well go ahead and add the kitchen. And with other costs, in the end, we borrowed money in order to finish the build out. Now we have an incredible loan because it's zero interest loan. But with this, there's a, a, a bulk payment that's coming at the end of this fiscal year. And so what I want to invite you to do is to pray about giving above what you already give. And here's what's amazing. If 400 of us just gave an extra $100 more a month for the next 12 months. We would actually not only meet our budget goal for the year, we would actually pay off all that we owe in one year. Or if just 100 of us began to tithe for the first time, over this next year we'd pay off all that we owe. And maybe you're here and you haven't yet given towards this community, but this is your church home. I want to encourage you to just ask God, to give you the courage to trust him in this way. Together we can do so much more than what we could do on our own. I wanna encourage you that what we're doing matters. It's making a difference in this city. I, I think I may have referred to this before, but this used to be known, South Austin has been known as the church planter's graveyard. It's because so many churches have started and then stopped. You've helped create a community that's bringing life and freedom to people now and will continue to. And maybe you can join in with us if you haven't been a part of this build out and help us finish. God, we are grateful for how good you are to us. Not just in material ways and circumstances, but your love for us. Even your invitation to become generous people and people willing to sacrifice. God, that's for our own good. May we not just give in to the ways of the world, but to see things with an eternal perspective. Forgive us when we get caught up in this upside-down, broken world, but that we would have eyes to see as you do. Your love for people, your desire to see people of faith make a difference in this world, a difference that counts now and eternally. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.